I don't think I've ever had a group of alcoholics whistle at me like that before. <laughs> Always wanted to. <laughs> Hi, my name is Peggy Gout, and I am a very, very grateful member of Aladon. Um, I want to thank I want to thank Chris very much for asking me to share with you here today. And I have to check my watch. I know this meeting started a little late. Do I get a couple extra minutes or okay? I do love to talk, so. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, yesterday I found it real interesting when we got here. Uh, we set our tent up and we walked down here to a meeting and, and there was an AA meeting going on and it was on the promises. And, you know, Al-Anon's been given some promises also. And one of the newest ones is that we will intuitively know how to baffle things which used to handle us. And I think that's come real true in my life. Anyway, um, also, if you came here this evening expecting to hear his story sober, you're not going to hear that because Matt and I are a recovery couple, and we've been together a little over two years, and um, so I just will tell you my story, and I thank God it does not include Matt while he was still drinking because I don't know if I'd still be here. Um, I grew up in Arizona. Um, I came from what I believe to be an alcoholic home. Um, I heard a speaker say we're not supposed to say that somebody's an alcoholic if they don't admit it to themselves, but if they walk like a duck and talk like a duck and act like a duck, they must be a duck. Well, that's kind of what went on in my home. Um, my dad, I believe, was the alcoholic, and my mother grew up in an alcoholic home, and so she had very untreated alanonism, and I believe it was my mother's behavior that affected me more than it was my dad's drinking. You know, uh, I believe that alcoholism, uh, no matter which side of the fence you're sitting on, whether you're the alcoholic or you're the non-alcoholic that is involved in a relationship, no matter what type of relationship it is with an alcoholic, it's a, it is a disease of isolation and loneliness. And I developed that at a very early age. My dad would go out uh, drinking after work. He ran two cotton gins and he farmed. He was very busy. And my mom thought that he was doing other things besides actually doing what he was supposed to be doing, and that was courting his customers and trying to sell them to come to his gin and gin their cotton with him. And she thought he was out messing around, and the minute he walked in the door, the fight was on. My mom was a rager. She threw plates. She yelled and she screamed, and I wanted nothing but to hide and to get away from all of that. And when I was young, I started isolating. I started isolating in my mind first, and then I started just finding places where I could physically hide and didn't have to be around what was going on. This microphone sounds real funny. Yeah. Anyway, um, it was just a lot of real craziness when we were growing up. Uh, and because my mom was always so worried about what my dad was doing, she neglected my sister and I, or she took it out on us. Whatever her anal was, she took it out on us. And she didn't physically abuse us. It was more the, the mental, the not being there, uh, the preoccupation with him that, um, you know, that was the type of abuse it was. It wasn't anything physical. And I learned all those things from my mother. And when I grew up and I got married and I got involved in all of those relationships, I did the same thing to my son. 
And it was something that I, you know, I didn't want to see in myself. And, and when I'd be yelling and screaming at, at my son and I'd look in that mirror and I'd see her and I'd say to myself, oh, my God, you know, there's my mom all over again. Um, my dad failed at farming. He lost his job. And none of it that I know, and I, and I really don't think it was related to alcohol. It just, just was the way things happened. And uh, we moved out of the country, moved into town, and, you know, things just kept getting progressively worse at home. When I was almost 16, my dad suffered a massive heart attack, uh, just about died, and things changed at home for him. Uh, he had a lot of limitations. He was supposed to stop drinking. He didn't. Um, and, you know, the, the dynamics at home started to change. I'm the oldest of just two, I have a younger sister, and I started becoming more responsible for her, uh, more responsible for things around the house, making sure the yard got mowed because my dad couldn't do it anymore, and doing things for my sister that nobody else would do for, for whatever reason, and making sure dinner got cooked because by then my mom was out working, and um, my dad was working again, and, you know, it was just more responsibility, so I you know, learned caretaking very well. Um, again, I was, I was still learning even better how to isolate. I would find, it, it just surprises me today when I look back on it, the, the loneliness that, you know, of growing up in this, in, in alcoholism. Um, I joined a, a, a club, I guess that's what you'd call it, it when I was, uh, I don't know, about 13, 14 years old, it's called Job's Daughters, I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, it you have to be affiliated with a mason or an eastern star in order to get in, and you go up into this room uh, at the Masonic Temple, and you'd wear these white gowns, they made you look like an angel, because they had the big long sleeves on them, and, and you couldn't wear them outside, so you had to get dressed there. And you had to go up in this little room to change, and it was very ritualistic. It had a cord around it, and it had to be tied just so. And I didn't know a soul. I didn't know any of these other girls that were in this club. And I would, for probably the first six months, we met uh, every Wednesday night, and I would go up there, and I would get dressed, and I would come down, and because I was so insecure, so shy, so lonely and did not know how to reach my hand out and say, you know, I would like to be friends with you, I would pull the yellow pages out and stand there and go through the yellow pages of the phone book until the meeting started. And I felt so alone. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize that that had to do with, with alcoholism until, you know, I, I got into Al-Anon. Um, like I said, home was crazy. Uh, I was a rebellious teenager. I was one of those um, very quietly rebellious teenagers. Uh, I was had been dating a, a boy for about two years, and uh, I was 17, and I got pregnant. And, you know, it was a way to get out of the house, and so we got married. And a couple weeks after uh, the marriage, I uh, had a miscarriage. And today I'm real thankful that that happened because at 17 years old, I did not need to be a mother. And honestly, I don't really think I wanted to be a mother. I just wanted a way out of my parents' home. 
I had known him for two years, uh, and we had been married probably about six weeks or so. We moved to Indio, California. That's where he'd gotten a job. I had left my home, and uh, we weren't there but a couple of weeks. And one morning, I was getting his lunch ready for him to take to work, and for no reason whatsoever, he just beat me. I don't know where it came from. I don't know why it happened. I I don't recall doing anything to provoke it. I had never been physically abused in my life. And I stayed there for uh, eight months because I had too much pride. Too much pride to say I failed, to go home and, you know, really make my life better, not knowing then that it, that it could be better. But I just had way too much pride, you know, to walk out the door. We split up several times, back and forth. Uh, he went into the Army. We moved to Texas. The beating still continued. And we came back on leave, and I knew that I, I wasn't brought up like that. I didn't deserve that. And after the last one, I said, you go back to Texas. I'm staying. And I was 18 years old. I'm 42 years old right now, and I haven't seen that man since the day he walked out that door. I don't know where he is. I don't know what he's doing. Um, I divorced him, and, you know, I went on. But I was so lonely, and I thought that the only thing that was going to fix the loneliness, make me feel better, was another man. And so began my journey <laughs> of alcoholics. And um, it didn't take too much longer, and I found, uh, I, well, I went out with quite a few guys, but I hooked another one. And uh, it was time to get married again. I was still living with mom and dad. I wanted out of that house, and so I got married again. I was 20. And I do know that that my second husband, he's the father of my son, that he is an alcoholic. Um, coming on this camp out this weekend, you know, it's just such a joy for me because he and I went on a lot of campouts on the river, on the Colorado River. We had a boat, and he water skied, and, and I pulled him, and we never went anywhere without two or three cases of beer for the weekend. And there wasn't a night when we'd go on those uh, weekend outings, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that he wasn't plastered by the time, you know, we went to bed. And I hated it. I hated every minute of it. It was like, why can't you just, you know... Leave the beer alone. Why do you have to get like this every time we go? You know, I had no idea about alcoholism. And uh, the place we'd go to on the river, there was a marina there. And at that time, Arizona was 19 for the drinking age, and the kids from California would come over. You could drive through the marina where they were all camped, and they'd have cases of beer stacked this high. You know, it was party time all weekend. And I'm not going to tell you that I didn't drink because I'm a person that drank, and I drank a lot. I smoked a lot of pot. I did a few drugs, but, you know, I'm not an alcoholic. I can I can set a beer down, leave it half full, and walk away from it. I can drink a small glass of wine, and that's it because I start to feel it, and I don't want to have any more. I might have to drive. You know, I might have to go back to work that afternoon. I don't know. I, I'm just not an alcoholic. Um... I thought a child would fix that marriage, and so uh, it took me a couple years, but I finally had a son, and he didn't want him. He didn't want me to get pregnant at all, and, it, you know, I do whatever I want to do. I don't care what you want. I'm going to do it anyway, 
And uh, when I was pregnant, he told me that that kid was going to love him more than he would ever love me. And that just broke my heart, you know. I wanted this child so badly because maybe maybe then I would feel okay. You know, if I had had a kid, maybe then I would be okay. You know, I didn't know until I got to this program that I had this tremendous hole in me. And it's, I'm a real visual person. So when I think about it, I just, I just think about my total stomach being gone. Sometimes I wish it was, but, you know, just so that I'm totally, you can see right through me. And, and when I finally grasped that concept of, you know, having this, this, uh, just no spirit, you know, no link to God whatsoever, and, and that this loneliness that I always felt, that I could just see this, this hole in my soul. And uh, like I said, I thought this kid was going to fix it, and, you know, nothing fixed it, nothing made it better, and my son was 18 months old, and, and I separated from him, and, and I went on my merry way. And that's when things really started to happen for me. Um, I did my one and only geographic. Uh, I had, you know, made all the rounds in the bars there in the town I was from. It's not that big of a town. And, uh, you know, I knew just about everybody and had grown up in this town. And so it's time to move on and, and make life better somewhere else. You know, maybe if I move somewhere else, it'll be okay. And I was offered a really wonderful opportunity to come to Fresno, and I took it, and I, you know, I went. I never thought that I had any fear. You know, I took off with a three-year-old child to a town where I knew absolutely no one, didn't have any family, and I didn't think twice about it. I go over to the coast with him. I drive back to Arizona with him on 10-hour trips and, and never think anything about it, that, that there was anything wrong with that. And, and I thought I was really courageous, you know. And I, that never scared me to, to go looking for him in the bad parts of town at night. But when I got here, I realized how much fear I did have, you know, how much fear of being alone, um, the fear of not looking good, you know, of what you were thinking about me. All of those things. But the other things, I, you know, I, I just thought I was so courageous. And then when I got here, I, you know, I found out how much fear I really did have. I had a lot of relationships uh, after I moved here uh, prior to my third marriage. Um, one of them was a really, really sick relationship. Um, I did things in regards uh, to leaving my son alone, um, trying to find him in places where, you know, I thought he might be, uh, trying to fix it so it was okay. Uh, just really, I did a lot of damage, uh, I feel, to my son. And uh, because I, I didn't leave him alone, but I was not there. Like my mother was not there for me, I was not physically there for him or emotionally there for him. And, you know, I... I know that it has done a lot of things. He's a very, he's 17 now and he's a very angry, uh, kid. Um, he's a real typical teenager, but he's just, you know, I see him just really lost. And, uh, you know, but I've learned that I did the best that I could at that time. And so now I just try to be the kind of mom that I wanted to be. I didn't know how to be then. And, and that's, that's what I do today in regards to my son. But this one relationship in particular was very, very sick. Um, 
you know, the, the guy wasn't working. I said, okay, well, you don't have a place to live, and all right, you can move in with me, and I didn't want to do this, but I thought it would be okay. You know, this will be all right. I'll fix it for him. I'll make it okay. And the first night that he moved in, he didn't come home all night. I never had anybody do this to me. And, you know, I get up the next morning, I'm calling all the hospitals, I'm calling the police department, I'm calling the sheriff's station, you know, where are you? This has never happened. And he finally came in and he goes, what's the big deal? You know, I, I just was out all night. What's the big deal? And, and don't say a word to me. I do what I want to do. And, you know, it was like, how dare you? How dare you? And But I I stayed, you know. I allowed him to continue to live in my home, and it just it continually got worse. His money situation got worse. I had some money, and I said, okay, well, I know how you can make some money. You know, he was dealing in drugs, and I, I said, all right, I'll finance a drug deal for you. You know, I'm not proud of myself that I did that. But I wanted it to be okay. I needed this guy to fix me. I needed him to make me feel better. And if he was with me instead of out with some other her, then I would be okay. Um, needless to say, that relationship didn't last. Uh, and I, I got really, really sick when it broke up. And I had a, a bit of a breakdown, and a friend of mine got me to a psychologist, and I started into some therapy. And I was real thankful at the time. The therapist said, well, you know, in talking with her, she says, I think you came from an alcoholic home. And she said, I think your biggest problem is, is that you love people too much. So you're a woman who loves too much. And there was this book out, I mean, well, it's still out, but it had just come out at that time, and it was called Women Who Love Too Much. And she says, you need to buy it, you need to read it, and there's another book called Adult Children of Alcoholics, you need to buy it and read it, and, you know, and we'll, we'll get started on some therapy here. I, re- I bought that book, I read it from cover to cover in just a couple days, and I identified with every woman in that book. Now, today, in... Recalling that book, there were women in there that talked about being in relationships with alcoholics. This woman never said anything to me about Al-Anon. I went to her for about three or four months for as long as I could afford it, and she started a therapy group of other women who were dealing with the same thing, and I was very fortunate that she did it for free. And I went to this therapy group for about two years, and nobody ever said anything about Al-Anon. I left that therapy group because I just, you know, I just wasn't getting any more out of it. We'd go there, we'd sit, and everybody complain about their husbands or their boyfriends or whatever, and, and, you know, I just wasn't getting any more out of it. And before I quit there, though, I had met this guy. He was real tall, dark, oh, he was so good looking, and um, he just had this look on his face that was like, I need somebody to fix me and make it better. And, you know, for me, that is the worst look in the world. It is just death. And I just knew that I could fix it and I could make it better for him. He was shy. He was very intelligent. But, you know, he just was so insecure. And I just knew that I could bring out all that potential in him. And so we started on our relationship. And I think that's another reason why I quit the the group is because the group was kind of getting in the way with this relationship. 
And because it was starting to be, you know, again, another one of those really sick relationships. And I, I could see some patterns starting again. You know, he was without a job. And I'm again going, okay, well, you can live with me for a while until you get back on your feet. Well, then the next thing I know, we're buying a house together. And then the next thing I know is we're getting married. And, you know, I didn't know about choices. I didn't want to get married. I didn't want to walk down the aisle. But his parents had, uh, I wasn't sure wasn't going to ask my parents for any money on a third marriage, you know. And his parents had put out about $3,000 for a wedding. And we'd already gotten some really beautiful wedding gifts. And I didn't want to do it. But I didn't know how to say no. I didn't know how to say, I don't want to do this. Because I was afraid that you would be mad at me if I did. You know, I was afraid his parents would be mad. The people that had bought the really nice gifts and then I had to take them back would be mad. And I didn't know how to say no. And we were married a couple months and I was uh, talking to somebody that I work with and I said, oh, God, how do I get out of this? I am so unhappy. I am so miserable. And she said, you just got married. I said, I know, but I I'm miserable. You know, and, and there wasn't a, a weekend because the only time we saw each other was on the weekends. He worked at night. I worked during the day. And um, there wasn't a weekend that went by that there wasn't a lot of alcohol. There wasn't a lot of drinking. And, you know, alcoholism is a progressive disease. And my part in that illness uh, progressed also. It got to where on the weekends when we were together, I wasn't comfortable unless there was just total chaos going on at home, unless I was raging and screaming. You know, and, and again, this, this kid of mine, you know, he's got this mom that's always angry, always mad. You know, why can't you just be happy, mom? You know, Steve, Steve works, you know, he finally got a job and, and, you know, everything's okay, mom. Why can't you just be happy? Why do you always have to pick a fight, mom? You know, and, and it was like, I'm not. If he would just stop drinking, we'd be okay. And then the two of them didn't like each other anymore, you know. And I was the one that was always in the middle trying to fix it all and make it better so that if they were both happy, then I could be happy. You know, it, it was always like that. And my son was 11 and a half, and he says, Mom, I don't want to live here anymore. I want to go back, and I want to live with my dad. And I said, okay. You know, it was more important to me that he not hate me by me saying, no, you can't go, because I knew that was not really the healthiest place for him to be. And so in my, I was so worried about how he was going to feel about me, but I said, go ahead and go. And I thought, okay, well, now maybe, you know, this is a time when we could actually, you know, just be a couple and maybe things could be better. We could just really concentrate on the marriage with no child around and, and just really, you know, maybe things will work. And, you know, it didn't. It just it just got worse and worse. And, and he was drunk all the time every weekend. That You know, he'd go fishing and wouldn't come home for hours. And I'd go to bed. I'd go to sleep. But I couldn't stay asleep. I'd wake up and worry, where is he? You know, why isn't he home yet? And, you know, I'd wait till that truck pulled up into the driveway. And once I heard that, then maybe I could go back to sleep. And then I'd have to get up and go to work the next day, you know. And it was time for my son to come home for his Christmas vacation. This is the first Christmas, you know, that he's gone. And it's his turn to spend it with me. And 
And he's being really ugly to me on the telephone, you know, just real hateful and, and mean, and I, I don't understand this. You know, I raised this kid practically on my own since he was three, and, and I don't understand why he's treating me like this. And I decided, well, I'll, I'll go see a therapist. You know, they have all the answers, and, and I'll, go, I'll go find out, you know, what's going on here. And... I went in and talked to her, and, you know, therapists, they don't want to just deal with what you want to go in there and deal with. They want to find out everything about you, and then they start asking a whole bunch, you know, a whole bunch of questions and get deeper and deeper, and she says, you know, I think you're married to an alcoholic, and I said, well, you know, I think you're right. I, I think I am, and she says, and I think you grew up in an alcoholic home, and I said, well, you know, I, I've been told that before, and, and you probably are right. And uh, she helped me deal with, you know, getting him there for the Christmas vacation and understanding what was going on with him. I saw her a couple times, and she said, you have your, your vacation with him, and then I want you to come back and see me, and I want to, I want to hear how it went. So it was probably two of the worst weeks of my life. He and my husband were at each other's throats all the time. And it, in that two weeks, I realized that I had a then 12-year-old and a 13-year-old who was in his 30s. You know, I realized that I had two kids, and I didn't like that feeling anymore. And I was getting so tired all the time. You know, I was I was lonely. You know, there's nothing worse than being in a relationship and being lonely. Sitting in a room with someone that you suppose you are supposed to love and care about, and feeling like they're not there at all. And that's the way it was all the time. I was so lonely all the time, and he was right there. And the, the two weeks that my son was there, you know, like I said, it was, it was awful. Uh, they were at each other all the time. I was constantly trying to make it okay for the two of them, and all I was doing was just making it worse for me. And I drive home from work at night, and there's a street in Fresno called Herndon. It's the only one street that you can go 50 miles an hour on, and I had a small sports car, and those, you know, uh, telephone poles were starting to look real inviting as I was speeding down that street, because I don't go to speed limit. I, I like to push it just a little bit further, you know, and I, I really, I just didn't want to do it anymore. I was so tired, and I went back to that therapist for one more visit. After my son left, I was so angry with my husband, I, I couldn't even see straight. I didn't even want to talk to him. And she says, you know, there's only one thing you really, really need to do. She said, you need to go to Al-Anon. And I knew what it was because I'd already been to one meeting. And I didn't like it. The secretary of the meeting read and read and read. You know, she read the mail. And it was like, I, I don't want to hear all this. You know, I'm going to read my own mail. And uh, she, so I knew what Al-Anon was, and uh, she says, you really need to go. You need to get a sponsor, and you need to work the steps. She said, I think your life will be much better, and I really don't want to see you, you know. I, I really think this is all you need to do. And I followed directions pretty well. I didn't make another appointment with her, and I went to Al-Anon. I didn't go that night. Uh, I don't, you know, it was, uh, I tried to go to this meeting in Clovis. Uh, Clovis is a town right next to Fresno. It was in this little house uh, right next to a treatment facility. All I had was a street address. I, I didn't know it was this little house that was part of the treatment facility. So I couldn't find it. I mean, it was pouring rain. It was just like sheets of rain were coming down. So I didn't make it that night. Nor did I realize there was more than one meeting. So I waited a whole week, went to it the next Thursday night. 
I walked in there not, not really knowing what to expect other than what I had, you know, experienced at the other meeting. And they didn't do all this mail reading. They did a few announcements. They read the steps, the traditions. Everybody, you know, read their, said their names, and then they started the meeting. And I will never forget that meeting. Uh, it was a birthday meeting for two of the members. It was a year for them. And one of them was uh, chairing the meeting, and the topic was fear and faith. And it was in that meeting that I realized I had an awful lot of fear and absolutely no faith whatsoever. And I sat there and I related to everybody that shared in that meeting. And I knew that I was where I needed to be. And when I think about it now, it still is a very emotional thing for me. Because, um, you know, I didn't miss a week for many, many weeks. I went to that meeting faithfully every Thursday night. Now, I still didn't realize that I could go to another meeting. You know, I, I just thought I could go to this one meeting. Uh, about the second or third meeting, I went up to the secretary and I said, uh, what is a sponsor and how do I get one? She said, well, we only have one person in this meeting, because it was a newcomer's meeting. She said, we only have one person in this meeting who's probably qualified to be a sponsor. And she pointed her out to me. And so I walked over there and, and I said, hi, my name's Peggy, and I'd like, I'd like to know what a sponsor is. And so she was telling me, and, and basically what she was doing is she was waiting for me to ask her to be my sponsor. And I said, so do you sponsor? And, and she shook her head yes, you know, and, and finally I said, she kept saying, well, you have to ask somebody. And so I said, okay, well, then will you be my sponsor? You know, it's about five minutes of going back and forth with this. And she was, she was exactly what I needed when I first got in the program. She was just this absolutely wonderful woman. Um, she was an older woman, uh, I don't know, you know, kind of like a grandmother type for me. And I was in so much pain, and she would just let me cry. You know, she would hold me, and she'd just let me cry. And I remember one time we'd, we'd met at a coffee shop, and I, I just couldn't stop crying. And she said, let's, let's go out to the car and start doing it her way. And um, she, it, it's real hard for me to see her today um, because I know how much she's hurting. I know how much she's hurting inside because she's not working the program and she's trying to do it all her way and fix it and everything else. And, and it's real hard for me to see her today. Um, she started working with me on the steps right away, and I, my life started to change. Um, you know, in the opening of our meetings, um, it says that we can find happiness whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. And that was a real, real important thing for me when I came into Al-Anon because I wanted to be happy. You know, I'm on my third marriage, and, you know, I don't want to be a failure again. I didn't want to do this to begin with, but somehow or another, I'm going to make it work. Whether he's drinking or not, I'm going to make it okay. It's going to be okay for me. You know, I didn't go in there trying to get him sober. I went in there to make me feel better. And I started feeling a lot better. And right away, I got into service. Um, the, like I said, the meeting was in this little house that was part of a treatment facility. And they would go in once a month for the family group on Sunday afternoons, and they would do an Allen on panel. It was real hard for me in this meeting because I, I seemed to be the only one who had a practicing alcoholic in their life. Everybody else was in a relationship with, with somebody that was in recovery. So a lot of times it was real hard for me to relate. And my sponsor was the one that was responsible for getting people to go to this, do this panel. So one day she asked me if I wanted to go do it. 
And I hadn't been in the program very long. I don't know, maybe, I know less than six months, maybe three, four months. And I said, well, I, you know, I just don't really think that I have a lot to give. And she says, you do. Because you're working this program and you're living with a practicing alcoholic. And these people need to know, you know, that the, the success rate out of these recovery homes is pretty small. And there's a big chance that they're going to go back out and they're going to drink again. And they need to know that there's a program out there for them. And, and you're doing this, and they need to know they can do this too, whether he drinks or not. And so I started doing that, and I really got a lot out of it. I know the first time that I went and shared, I probably talked about 10 or 15 minutes. And I don't even think I talked 15 minutes, you know. And it just did something for me. I just loved it. Just absolutely loved it. And, and that's a big part of my recovery today is that I do institutions work. And Alan, uh, I know there's a lot of alcoholics here that we don't call it H&I, we just call it institutions. And um, I do panels at the recovery home, and I also go out to the Chowchilla Women's Prison, and I do a panel there. And we don't do it... Uh, for an Al-Anon meeting, we do it because we just say, you know, we're trying, but you know, I don't know if any of you have ever worked with the state before or not, but it's really difficult trying to get something going. Uh, but what we do do is we take two panels out. They have a, a class on alcohol and drug abuse, and we go in once every six weeks, and we, we talk to the inmates in the class. Uh, they have two of them, and it's just, I've been to the men's prison on a panel, and it's just... I can't even describe to you what it does for me. It's, it's one of the most rewarding things I do. And I have so much gratitude when I leave there. So much. Um, anyway, uh, like I said, I, uh, I started doing service work early. Uh, it, it has helped me. All the things that I've done in service have helped me with my recovery. I don't feel that a person can come into this into the program and just sit there and expect it to happen for them. You know, somebody, a, a speaker I once heard said, you can park your car in a garage and, it, and it's a car. And you can go out there and you can sit in your garage for the rest of your life, but you're never going to become a car. And you cannot go to a meeting and sit there and not work the steps and not have a sponsor and not get out of yourself and do service and give back what you get and get recovery. You know, to me, those are the things that I have to do. I can't just go and sit in meetings and get recovery. It's not going to work like that for me. And I don't think I've ever seen it work like that for anybody else. Um, my son, like I said now, is 17 years old. Um, he came back to live with me in uh, September, end of August. And he was 16 then. And he's been living with this practicing alcoholic for five years. Now, this isn't a bad kid. He doesn't go out and, and rob and tag and, and, uh, you know, he's not in a gang or anything else. He's a, he's a pretty quiet kid, um, lazy, uh, like most teenagers, I think. And if there's any teenagers here, I'm not trying to be insulting. <laughs> but, you know, I see a lot of problems for him and in him. And, you know, he's, when he was in the eighth grade, I think he worked on doing some qualifying. Uh, he has admitted to me today that, uh, you know, he smoked, he was smoking pot and drinking when he was in the eighth grade. 
I do know that he had a blackout when he was in the eighth grade. He had uh, alcohol poisoning. But, you know, this program has taught me that whatever his path is, he has to walk it. And there's nothing that I can do to change it. In all the relationships I've had before I got to this program, I always thought that if I took care of it, if I just did this a little bit better or did that a little bit better, then your life would be easier and you wouldn't have to feel so bad and for the alcoholics then they wouldn't have to drink. And you know, and I learned that that doesn't work. That's enabling. And each person has to have the right, the dignity to succeed or to fail all on their own. And, you know, I can't do that. That's me trying to be a higher power, and I'm not. And because I had to let him go, um, when he was 14, he was just really a, an awful kid, and he'd come to stay for the summertime, and he got out of the car, and he was just, just awful. And I said, you can't stay here if you're not going to behave. And he said, I'm not going to. And I said, then you have to go back. You have to go back to your dad. Now, I love this kid so much, and, and I'm only going to get to see him for two weeks. And I haven't seen him in six months, and, and I just love him. And I didn't want to do that, but I knew that for me, for my serenity, that was the most important thing, and that he had to go back. You know, he had already started to make his path in life, and, and that's what he had to do. I put him on the plane, and I had always prayed that someday, you know, I, I was a, one of those kinds of moms that put his dad down or anything else that maybe maybe the light would be turned on for him and that he would realize what he was dealing with. And he called me after he'd been back to Arizona for about three weeks. And he says, you know, Mom, my dad's just like, uh, like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. One day he's okay and the next day he's not. You know, and he's just back and forth all the time. And that started a relationship for the two of us that we had never had before. By me letting go of him, I have a relationship with him today that I could have never dreamed of. He has a lot of respect for me. You know, if he cusses, he'll apologize to me. I'm sorry, Mom. I know you don't like that. I'll try not to do it. You know, he wanted to run away not too long ago. And he wrote me this note, and he says, I can't do it, Mom, because I love you, and that would hurt you too much. He said, I may do it, but right now I can't do it. And I know that if I had not had faith in a higher power three years ago to, to make him go back, to let go of him, that um, we wouldn't have the type of relationship that we have today. Um, a couple years ago, well... I need to tell you that I did divorce my third husband. That's probably pretty obvious since Matt and I are married. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I I got to that point where I found happiness whether he was drinking or not, and that happiness was that I was okay by myself. I was okay just being Peggy. I was okay just being me. And I, you know, I talked with my sponsor a lot and I said, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I want to end this or not. And she says, you're the only one that knows. And you know, God finally made that decision for me one day. It got to the point where I thought he was going to be physical with me and I cared too much about me to allow that to happen again. And he had never been physical with me before. And I finally said, this is enough. I've had enough. 
and it's time for us to stop. I mean, by this time we were sleeping in separate rooms, so we probably hadn't had sex in about six or seven months, you know, and, and it, it just wasn't a marriage anymore, and, and I was ready for it to be over with, and so we finally, we finally split, uh, he went his way, and the divorce was really ugly and really nasty, and in that divorce I needed to make amends to him. One of the things that he asked for in that divorce was that I pay him spousal support. Now, he worked. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> and I just could not understand why I had to pay spousal support. And at first I said, okay, I'll do it. And then it was like I listened to some speakers, I did some praying, and I thought I heard the message was, no, you don't have to do this. So I said, no. I told my attorney, I said, no, I don't want to do this. And uh, I want to fight this. And I was ready for the outcome, I thought. And the day when I had to go to court, I took my sponsor with me, another really good friend in the program with me, and so that I was not there alone. Don't have to do it alone anymore. And, uh, you know, he got awarded that spousal support, $500 a month. And there was no end to it because it was not a, a, a permanent order. It was a temporary one. And I was just being eaten up inside. I, I just didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't know how I was going to make it. And um, my sponsor said, you know, when you were married to him, you were pretty controlling with the money. And I was. You know, I wanted to know every penny that he spent, where he spent it, how he spent it. You know, he'd come to me with a stack of ATM receipts like this. You know, I thought the ATM machine was a slot machine. And she said, you know, maybe this is your financial amends to him. Maybe God is trying to tell you something. And so I had to take a long look at that. And to get over that fear, that financial fear, I had to work all those steps around that. And, end up, and I ended up making those amends that I needed to make to him. And, you know, that financial fear went away. And uh, I don't make the self-support payments anymore. Those are over with, thank God. And, um, you know, and, and I have peace over that. Um I want, to, I want to talk a little bit about my relationship today. I don't want to say that I'm the happiest that I've ever been because of the relationship, because no one person can make me happy. I know that. I know that's an inside job. I know that's between me and God. But because I allow God to work in my life, and because we allow God to work in our marriage, I am the happiest that I have ever been. Um, we don't have a perfect relationship by any means. And, you know, some things were cropping up that I, don't, I know that, you know, I don't do relationships well, obviously. I'm on my fourth marriage. I don't do them well. And, um, you know, I needed to be able to communicate. And I don't communicate when I'm angry. I yell and I scream still. Or I just take it all inside and I don't say anything. And so we had, you know, we had to seek outside help in doing that. And I'm really glad that we did. Because our communication in just the short amount of time that we've been, we've been talking to someone else has improved a hundredfold. The things that we called untouchable, the things that we couldn't talk about, we can now talk about. You know, and, and it's probably the best thing. I can't go to my sponsor with these things because my sponsor doesn't have a lifelong relationship. 
you know, she doesn't, she doesn't know about these things. So I had to find somebody else that I could work with and, and that we could work with. And, and I'm really glad that we can do that and, and that we can have a, a relationship to us that it, we, we play will last the rest of our lives because that's what we want. Um, also, uh, next Sunday will be a year ago that my dad died. Uh, that was three weeks before we got married. So it was a really tough time for me. And right now it's a really tough time for me thinking about it. I had always wanted a really close relationship with my dad. And when he died, I had no regrets whatsoever. Um, and we've gone through a, a lot of death in this last year. We've lost three parents in this last year. And but because of our programs, we've been able to do things that in his family that his brothers and sisters couldn't do in, in regards to his father's death. We were able to do those things, help out. He died of cancer and he died at home. And we helped his stepmother take care of him in the last days of his life. And we were there when he died. And I would be forever so grateful that I have this program and a loving God that let me do that. Because when my dad died, he died suddenly, with, without warning. And there have been times when he'd been sick, and my sister took care of him. I wasn't there to do that, because I was far away. And so, by being here and working the program and knowing what God's will is for me, and that's to be of service, I was able to give back to my father-in-law what I couldn't give to my own dad. And, and I'm really grateful for that. It, it was a really hard thing. But I'm real grateful for that. Um, you know, I just have a tremendous amount of gratitude in my life today. Um, I don't have all those fears that I used to have. Um, most of the financial fears are gone. Um, the fear of loneliness most of the time that's gone and I was sharing with someone else earlier tonight that you know when I get to feeling lonely that's when I need to you know if I can't get over it by myself and you know through prayers when I need to, to reach out and, and call you know someone in the program to help me not to help me but just to talk to you know so, so that I don't feel alone I'm not alone in my relationship like I used to be but it's just that I don't know. I guess that part of me that's still sick. That's all I can say. It's just that part that's still, you know, still sick. But um, the gratitude I have is mostly that I have a relationship with a higher power, you know, and knowing and knowing that I only have to do one thing, and that's to get up every day and ask God for His will for me today, and to try to do the best to do that, and to be of service to you and um, be of service in my marriage and to my to my kids I have four we have four now and um, you know and and that's that's all that I need to know I always wanted to know why why this why that why me you know why not me and I don't need to ask why today I just need to do it and I really thank you for for asking me 
and it's uh, this meeting just kind of grew and grew. <laughs> but thank you very much for letting me share.